Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Patrick S. Moore. He's a MD, also has an MPH degree. He's a distinguished professor at the uh, University of Pittsburgh, and we're going to talk about cancer-causing virus. So, Patrick, thanks for coming. Oh, thank you. Yeah, tell me about your research. Uh, what got you interested in it in the first place, and what's it about? So what it is about is that uh, there are seven different viruses that we know cause human cancer, and that's a small number, of course, but altogether they account for between one-fifth and one-sixth of all cancer around the globe. So it's not a minuscule problem. And um, the issue is, is finding these viruses is, is really incredibly hard because viruses that do cause cancer tend to be in a stealth mode called latency, where they are, of course, their nucleic acids are present in the tumor, but they aren't necessarily producing viruses. So they don't have physical particles aren't necessarily transmissible, and we have to find them by techniques that are similar to hunting for human genes that might be causing cancers. So I got interested in this because I'm originally was an epidemiologist, done a lot of working on epidemics in Africa, and I was involved in an outbreak of what was then called a hemorrhagic fever in Nigeria. And the early tests for it, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what the virus was. So the early tests for it sort of suggested that it might be yellow fever, but they none of the tests actually worked. So, and that's an important problem because there's a really good vaccine against yellow fever. But if it's a new hemorrhagic fever virus, that's another story. So it turns out that after a lot of work on this individual strain, it turned out it was yellow fever virus and just mutated enough 
So all the diagnostic tests didn't work. So it became really clear to me and to my wife that one way that we should proceed in trying to find new viruses is to use molecular biology rather than physical techniques to isolate a virus. And so that's what we've been focused on for the past 30 years is using molecular biology techniques, pull out these nucleic acids from a virus that's in a tumor in order to characterize it. Well, how do people know that viruses cause these various kinds of cancer in the first place? Like historically, how is this discovered? Well, you don't know that. Uh, You don't know it until you find it. So the field of cancer research has gone up and down and up again with viruses as being a cause for cancer. It started back in around uh, 1908, 1909 with the discovery of a virus that caused cancers in chickens, as a matter of fact, by a fellow by the name of Rouse. And uh, so it was clear that he could transmit this virus and cause chicken cancers. But for decades after that, no one was able to see transmission in humans or in other mammals of a virus that caused cancer. And so the idea that viruses cause cancer started to fall off the radar of scientists until the 1950s and early 1960s, when a number of viruses were found that did cause cancers in particularly in rodents and hamsters. And from there, there was an enormous burst of enthusiasm for finding viruses as the fundamental cause for not just some cancers, but all cancers. First case where cancer was virus was found in humans uh, occurred for a virus called Epstein-Barr virus. And this was in 1964. There's a cancer called Burkitt's lymphoma, uh, named after a surgeon, Irish surgeon by the name of Burkitt, who would travel around Africa looking at unusual cancers. And this one cancer just didn't look like any cancer he'd seen when he was trained in, in Europe. Brought it back to a laboratory in in England. And there, uh, Tony Epstein and uh, Yvette Barr, who is his graduate student, and Bert Achong started looking at this, these cultures in tissue culture. And Achong in particular was able to get a very good EM uh, electron microscopic photograph of these cultures. And he saw, looked at it and said, oh my gosh, there's a virus. It's a type of herpes virus that's in these cultures. And so from then on, scientists were able to understand that, yes, indeed, there is a virus called Epstein-Barr virus that can cause cancers, but it really wasn't entirely clear how or why it caused cancer. In fact, it's kind of a puzzle for decades after that because Epstein-Barr virus is a ubiquitous infection. I have it. I'm pretty sure that you have it. Most anyone who's listening to this uh, this podcast, at least 95% of people who are adults have this infection. Well, how does anyone determine, again, that any virus causes a cancer? Like You know, you said historically this was found, but how was it established? Well, that's a really big problem. So there is a set of postulates called Cox postulates named after Robert Koch, who first put them together 
at the turn of the uh, 20th century. And because he was interested in, in saying, well, as scientists, how do we define whether or not a, in his case, he was looking at bacteria, how do we define whether or not a given bacteria causes disease? And so he came up with a series of postulates. But the most important thing about his postulates was that they required that the scientists be able to isolate the agent from a diseased tissue, grow it in the absence of that tissue, and then reinfect either an animal or tissue culture to renew that disease process again. And that's fine and good for a bacteria, but viruses are obligate parasites. They have to live in cells, so you can't really isolate them, truly isolate them separate from the cells that they're in and anticipate that they will be alive and that they'll be transmissible. So even though Cox postulates are commonly used to, to think about causality, they don't do a very good job of of determining causality for viruses. So there are other postulates that have been used that do sort of frame, well, what are the epidemiological issues that are surrounding this disease and this virus? And do do they match up so that it makes sense that this virus does cause this cancer. So it's not one experiment. It's not one single thing. It's actually a series of studies that sometimes can take years. In the case of Epstein-Barr virus, it took almost 30 years before the scientific community fully believed that it was a virus that causes human cancer. Okay. So in Epstein-Barr, it sounds like it's been well studied. What is the actual mechanism? You know, how does someone get it? How does the virus cause this condition or not? You know, why is there latency in so many people and not in some? But you know, maybe you can go over this if it's a good example. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, Epstein-Barr virus is, is a good example um, because it's so common. Almost all of us have it as a latent virus, meaning that the virus is silent. It's not making its own proteins, except for just one or two proteins that allow the genome to remain primarily in our lymphocytes and our bloodstream, and only in a small fraction of our lymphocytes. So it's perfectly happy as an organism, as a parasite, living there in this this very silent way. However, Every once in a while, of course, it has to reactivate in order to jump to a new host. So then it makes all of the hundred or so proteins that are and microRNAs and other things that are encoded by this virus to be able to package itself and then transmit itself to a new person. And so there's uh, mononucleosis, you probably know of, is a common infection, particularly of teenagers and, and college age kids, where Epstein-Barr virus is newly transmitted 
one person to another, often through kissing. So it's called the kissing disease. And when it does, when it is transmitted that way, it causes a traditional infectious disease. Fever lasts for a few weeks, maybe, you know, headaches, things like that. You can see antibody titers go up. If you were to sample someone's blood, you'd be able to see titers of virus go up and then go down as their immune system fights it. But the virus at the same time, a small fraction of the virus will go into the silent mode called latency and will remain latent in someone who's been infected. So how does it cause cancer? Well, that's a little harder to to tease out. That's one thing that we're uh, a lot of scientists are working on. We ourselves are not working on Epstein-Barr so much, but it probably has something to do with, for instance, there can be mutations in the human genome, particularly in the cell where this virus is living. In the case of Burkitt's lymphoma, it's called a rearrangement. Part of the genome becomes rearranged and starts overexpressing an oncogene called CMYK. Now, this is a cellular oncogene, but the Epstein-Barr virus works in tandem with this single single overexpressed oncogene to cause the lymphocyte where it was latent to start replicating. And so as it replicates, it undergoes clonal, what we call clonal proliferation, in that all the descendants of that single cell grow into a tumor and they can kill someone. So that's part of the reason is is no doubt that there are host factors that contribute to tumor genesis. Also, there could be environmental factors that contribute to tumor genesis. There is little understood disease in mainly in Asia, but also it occurs in coastal peoples around the world, but in particular in South China, Malaysia, Indonesia, called nasopharyngeal carcinoma. And that's caused by Epstein-Barr virus. We don't know why. Uh, There was at one point in time the idea that Maybe people were eating dried fish, dried fish. As they decompose, they start making compounds called nitrosamines. And these nitrosamines are alkylating agents that are tumorigenic. And so perhaps that's the reason that, is that these are people who are exposed through their diet to a specific type of mutagen that contributes together with the EBV infection to tumor genesis. So I'm more familiar with the two viruses that we discovered that we work on. One virus is called Capshi sarcoma, herpes virus. It's a very close relative to to Epstein-Barr virus. The other virus is called Merkel cell polyomavirus and causes Merkel cell carcinoma. So the first virus, I'll abbreviate it, call it KSHV because it's kind of a mouthful to to, uh, say Capshi sarcoma herpes virus all the time. But KSHV is under really strict immune control. So unlike EBV, it is only a small fraction of people, at least in the United States, are infected with this virus, probably less than 1%. But if you're severely immunosuppressed and you're... If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. One of those 1% of people that are infected, then the virus starts proliferating in the cells that line lymphatic ducts, sort of the way that serum is returned back to the to the uh, from the periphery back to the central circulatory system so so it causes these cancers and they're called capsi sarcoma and, and this was most 
made most famous during the AIDS epidemic. If you ever saw the movie uh, Philadelphia with Tom Hanks, yeah. one point in time, Tom Hanks develops these things on his face. It was Capshi sarcoma. And that was a common manifestation of AIDS, so much so that we had an enormous epidemic of KS, Capshi sarcoma, in the United States due to this virus infecting people who were immunosuppressed with HIV. So the AIDS KS epidemic was really the collision of two entirely different viruses, KSHV and HIV together, one causing immunosuppression, the other one causing the tumor to, to proliferate. But again, even with Kaposi's sarcoma or Kaposi, how was it established that it was a virus that was causing this? Oh, well, that was actually a much easier case because that virus is very rare, right? At least less than 1% of the general public. So the first thing we did is we looked at all types of Kaposi sarcoma. We looked at KS that came from AIDS patients. KS can occur in transplant patients. KS also occurs in Africa KS uh, can uh, occur in, in other immunosuppressed populations that don't have AIDS, don't have HIV. And what we saw is the virus was present in all of those conditions. Whereas if we looked at control tissues from various tissues, we never found this, this virus present. Very rare. So that was one thing. The other thing is that we could make a test that allowed us to detect antibodies to this virus. And most people do not have antibodies to this virus because they haven't been exposed to it in the United States. It's much more common in Africa, such that Kaposi sarcoma is one of the most common cancers throughout sub-Saharan Africa. It's, it's really a tremendous public health problem. But when we performed our tests, we could then take blood from various populations, and we could see that those people who are at risk for Kaposi sarcoma were also positive for this virus. And we could show, in fact, that people who had not developed Kaposi sarcoma, if they were followed over time, and this was primarily among AIDS patients, you could see patients become infected with this virus, and then months years later, develop Kaposi sarcoma. So that's very good evidence for what we call a temporal relationship that the virus occurred in these, this population before the emergence of the cancer. So on top of that, well, when, when we see... I don't mean, I don't mean, to, yeah. be, I don't mean no, no. to belabor the point, but you sure. know, I'm just, just being like devil's advocate. Sure. So the presence of the virus co you know, coincides with Kaposi sarcoma, but what would be the mechanism by which the virus would cause the cancer? Maybe it was latent in there. And, you know, when people had that cancer, for some reason, it weakened the immune system or distracted it to allow the virus to then proliferate. Oh, How do we know that it caused it? That's certainly, uh, that's certainly a good point. And that's reason for, for doing these long-term temporal studies, because in the case where people who we, we saw people who, did not have Kaposi sarcoma, became infected with this virus, and then later became uh, had Kaposi sarcoma form. But we never saw a case where a patient had Kaposi sarcoma, even if they're immunosuppressed, but they were negative for this virus, and then perhaps later became infected with it. So the the virus, the sequence of infection, made sense. Then 
Also, when we actually isolated the viral genome, we could look at the genes that were present in the viral genome, and we could see that the virus encoded a lot of different genes that are involved with the proliferation of cells that cause cells to become immortalized. And we could actually, in the laboratory, start to do tests where we could show that these genes, when they're expressed in cells, turn cells into cancer-like cells. So those are some of the criteria that were used to determine that uh, uh, that KSHV causes Capshi sarcoma. In the case of EBV, that was very hard to do because EBV is very common. So it's like asking the question, well, if everybody's infected with with EBV, how do you know it causes this rare cancer in only a few people? And the issue with that is that you have to actually look at those tumors to see how commonly the virus is present in the tumor cells. And if it's present in all the tumor cells, but it's not present in the non-tumor cells, which we can do that by staining for viral proteins in the tumor, then that's fairly good evidence that this virus is centrally related to that cancer. So those are the kinds of questions that people want answered before they actually believe that a virus does cause cancer. And it's, you're right, it's uh, hard. It takes generally at least a couple of years. Sometimes it takes decades before we can really determine that a virus, a given virus does cause cancer. What happens in the, the tumors formed in Kaposi's and Epstein-Barr and all these virus-related cancers? Like, how are they different? Are they more or less heterogeneous? Do they grow by additional viral infection of adjacent tissues, or do they grow by just the cancer dividing? I guess lots of questions. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good question. So first is, you know, as you know in your podcast, that cancer scientists have been focused on uh, mutations in cells that cause cells, the, the normal genetic mechanisms that are used to control cell growth, they become mutated and those breaks are lost on the cell. And so the cell is not able to die and then it also continues to proliferate. So if one takes a look at, for example, oh, melanoma and you sequence a melanoma genome, this is not caused by a virus that we know of. And instead, what it looks like is that the genome of the cancer has enormous number of mutations in it because of someone over their lifetime has been exposed to UV uh, radiation, and that causes mutations in the tumor. And those mutations ultimately develop into cancer. Each one of those mutations is independent of each other. What a virus can do, a virus can suddenly bring in a whole bunch of genes that attack these different pathways in different ways and put the cell at risk for developing into a cancer. Generally, our immune systems are able to fight off those cancers. So cancers that are caused by infection are more common in immunosuppressed patients, like AIDS patients, as we saw with Capshi sarcoma, but also with transplant patients, another group of people who have higher rates of cancers, and those cancers that are increased are often due to a viral infection. So you're saying that um, in these virus-caused cancers, uh, you'll find that the virus's genetic payload, you know, whether DNA or RNA, I guess, 
allows for the coding of how would it mutate a cell? I mean, it, would it just allow for the upregulation yeah, so, of certain so, factors that, that what? Yeah, so I'm sorry. Yeah, I wasn't clear about that. What what the difference is, is that whereas in melanoma, you may have you know millions of mutations within cancer cell due to UV irradiation, in a similar cancer called Merkel cell carcinoma that's caused by this the second virus that we found, it has virtually no mutations in the cancer cell. So just by virtue of the fact that this virus infected the cell and someone lost immune surveillance against the virus, that generally puts them at risk for Merkel cell carcinoma. Now, that's not the only thing. The virus itself has to mutate in a specific way, and it actually integrates into the host genome. And when it does that, and if someone has lost their immune response to this Merkel cell polyomavirus, MCV, then someone is at risk for this cancer, even though they don't have other mutations in their genome that would normally promote tumor genesis. So that's an example where these viruses, as you say, they bring in a genetic payload that it's not just a payload, uh, it's a MERVED payload that has multiple um, warheads that can target multiple different pathways within a cell and put that cell at risk for becoming a cancer. These virus cause cancers, they also coincidentally, or they all are contagious as well. Like you said, Epstein-Barr is spread by kissing, HPV by sex, Kaposi's yeah, well, sarcoma, right. I guess, secondary to HIV transmission. No, well, uh, it's, it's a little unclear as to whether KSHV is caused by kissing or caused by sex. It might, might be either. It's, it's unknown. And it probably differs in different populations around the world. But yes, of course, all of these viruses are transmissible. All of, all of these seven viruses are transmissible, just like the hundreds of other viruses that are transmitted and cause human disease. Big difference is that once they cause a cancer to emerge, in general, they are not making viruses that are transmissible. So if you have Kapschi sarcoma, the cancer cells themselves are generally not making the virus so that it can be transmitted from from a person with Kapschi sarcoma to a new person. That occurs in people who are generally healthy and asymptomatic, that kind of transmission. But probably, at least in the case of Kapschi sarcoma, only about one out of a thousand people who are infected with this virus actually develop this cancer under most circumstances. If you're severely immunosuppressed, for instance, you have uncontrolled AIDS, then that number really shoot up and it can actually be as high as one in two people or more can develop Kapschi sarcoma. But why would, uh, you know, if someone's healthy, why would the virus then be transmissible? But if they're, now they have cancer and they're not healthy, they, why would the virus not, again, invade other cells? Oh, that's a really good in point. The body? Yeah, so I haven't told you a lot about this, but it used to be thought that the oncogenes from a virus, that what they're doing is they're driving a cell to replicate so that they're putting the cell in a state called S phase, the cell cycle, so that the virus can make more DNA and replicate itself. So that's the 
fundamental biological reason for the virus to have an oncogene is to target a host cell and to drive it to re the host cell to replicate so the virus itself can replicate. Not that the virus per se wants to cause a tumor. Tumors are biological accidents, just like there is no biological reason for breast cancer or prostate cancer. There's no biological reason for Capshi sarcoma. It's an accident of our biology and the virus's biology. So under normal circumstances, these viruses are transmitted from person to person. For the most part, people don't have acute symptoms with the exception of mononucleosis, for example. But for Capshi sarcoma, most people who are infected probably have no symptoms. And we've actually measured this for MCV. We cannot find any symptoms that occur in people who are infected with that virus. That's under normal circumstances. But in that rare person that has, for instance, severe immunosuppression or a mutation to the viral genome or all of the other things that can happen that put them at risk for a cancer once they're infected, then that cancer begins to grow and the virus itself is latent within those cancer cells. So it's not making viral particles that can be transmitted. Why? Well, the reason is, is because in every cell, virtually every cell, there's a system called the innate immune system that controls whether or not the, if a cell is infected by a virus, it will try and be the first responders to control that replication. And so there are patterns to viral replication. And these patterns are recognized by the cell. For example, one pattern would be is if you had fragments of DNA in the cytoplasm. That's recognized by a protein called C-gas, and that stimulates very potent immune response as soon as it recognizes cytoplasmic DNA fragments. Now, in a normal cell, you never have cytoplasmic DNA fragments. It's in the nucleus. During mitosis, when the nuclear membrane starts to fall apart and so that the uh, chromosomes can, can uh, replicate and segregate, at that point in time, the C gas is shut down. So that if this virus, if a virus is seen as infecting a cell, then it will try to, the, the immune system will try and do two things. One, it will stop the cell from replicating. So it will starve the virus of the, the cellular resources that it needs to replicate. And two, if that fails, it will try and commit suicide. So that cell will actually die and undergo a process we called apoptosis. And so for a virus to avoid that, it wants to prevent this host cell from triggering cell death, this apoptotic phenomena. There's a set of proteins that target that. And so these Viruses tend to inhibit these pathways that control cell death, and they also inhibit the pathways that would arrest the cell from replicating because that's the immune response, and that's how it's the, the cell is trying to prevent a virus from replicating. But what I've just told you, these same pathways are also involved with controlling tumor cells. And if you inhibit these pathways, you can cause a cell to continue to replicate and to not die. And that is, by definition, a tumor.
Now, another component of it is that, of course, we have an immune system. We have uh, cell-mediated immunity and antibody-mediated immunity that can attempt to control a viral infection. And also, those arms of our immune system also tend to control tumors. So viruses that inhibit, for all the different ways that they do this, inhibit those components of the immune system also put organism at risk for tumorigenesis. One thing I was thinking is, um, I don't know, when people talk about uh, viral infections, I hear about, you know, the, the viral cell combo now makes, you know, new virions and, and they explode and kill the cell and spread. I haven't heard of cells undergoing cell division while infected by a virus, unless it's endogenized. In these cases, in these virus caused cancers, do the cells undergo Again, is it is it like it's not an either or. So the cells have virus in them, yet they're still able to proliferate quite rapidly, which seems to go contrary to what normal viral infections speak about. Sure, but um, so we know that viruses, when they're in a latent state, for instance, the Epstein Barr virus or or KSHV, they infect lymphocytes, and lymphocytes generally B lymphocytes, and these lymphocytes are at a primordial stage and they can be activated to replicate by an immune response. And so if they do replicate, the virus obviously has to replicate in tandem with that host cell in order to maintain itself, and it does. The actual act of initiating replications for some viruses may activate them and shift them from a latent stage to a um, lytic stage so that they will become productive infections and then uh, be able to infect someone else. So the the point is, is that no, the viruses can, in fact, uh, you know, if they're correctly designed by uh, Father Darwin, they can actually make use of cellular replication to maintain themselves and they can replicate together with, with host cells. So that's one reason why the immune system tends to shut off cellular replication, if at all possible, so that the virus cannot continue to replicate either as a latent virus or as a lytic virus. And uh, that's a very effective way of limiting viral replication, is shutting off the mechanisms that allow nucleic acids to be synthesized. Right, but the shutting off happens at the individual cell level? Yes, it happens at the individual cell level. It's immune-mediated? I thought that, you know, again, cancers hide from the immune system. And, no, that's, that's, that's a part, part of our immune system called the innate immune system. And so, for instance, interferon, which you probably have heard of, is a potent, it's actually a cytokine that's made by cells, and there are different types of interferons. But w- one of the key things that interferons will do is they'll initiate cell cycle arrest, so the cell cannot replicate. They will promote in most cells, not all cells, but most cells, they'll promote apoptosis or cellular suicide, form of cellular suicide. And also they will promote an immune response. So all of those things are very good and effective in limiting the ability of a virus to replicate. Um, and also, they're the same things that host cells use to prevent tumors from growing. In fact, exactly the same pathways. So the idea that there are viruses that are targeting these pathways 
that are used to control tumor genesis, it makes a lot of sense because these same pathways are used to control viral infections. And unfortunately, there are just a few bad actors, seven of them that we know of right now, that when the circumstances are not right, either a person has, for instance, a mutation in their CMYK gene or they're severely immunosuppressed, all of these things that are just occurring in a minor fraction of the, of the human population, then a tumor can emerge. But it, it's common enough that uh, somewhere between 16 and, and 20% of all cancers around the world are caused by infection. Well, I don't know. It seems like uh, virus-caused cancers behave differently or act differently than non-virus-caused cancers. What, oh, what are I, the, yeah, you know, the differences so. you observe? Well, some of the differences are that, as I said, that viral cancers tend to occur in immunosuppressed populations. Uh, viral cancers also have specific geographic groups where they occur. For instance, Capshi sarcoma is very common in Africa and parts of, of China. Nasopharyngeal carcinoma caused by Epstein-Barr virus, as I've mentioned, has this strange geographic localization, whereas other cancers, not so much that are not caused by infection. So what that also means is the cancers that occur in very old people can sometimes be caused by viral infections. And the reason is, is because like everything else, as we age, our immune system ages so that frequently parts of our immune system will no longer be able to control a viral infection like it could when we were young. And so for this reason, Capshi sarcoma, outside of the context of HIV AIDS, in the United States at least, is generally a disease among the elderly. Another place where cancers can occur that are caused by infection also tends to be in the very young because they're someone who's has not been exposed to a virus, has not yet had the developed an immune response to it. And so some of the cancers that EBV causes, for example, occur in young children that are exposed if they have a specific mutation that interrupts their innate immune system from controlling the viral infection they will develop lymphoma. Again, if you look at the nature of you know, the tumors themselves in Kaposi's sarcoma, Epstein-Barr virus, et cetera, how do the tumors differ, not only in, in their, you know, I guess, in their heterogeneity and their composition and their growth? What are yeah, some of the things that seem to be not, hallmarks of these kinds of cancers? Yeah, it's not obvious. If you're, if you're looking at a microscope and um, uh, at a tumor under a microscope, it's not at all obvious that you can say that one tumor is caused by a virus and another one is not. There are some things that are, are consistent. So, for example, there are very few tumors that will spontaneously go away and then reoccur, or but will spontaneously go away. Merkel cell carcinoma is one of those things, uh, one of those types of cancers. And that's probably due to the fact that someone maybe transiently has lost an immune response to the virus that's causing this cancer. And, you know, sometimes when the doctors take out one tumor, there's still enough antigen there that it sparks an immune response. And so even though the surgeons didn't take out other cancers, it's metastasized to a place that they can't go to, those cancers will grass. So that's um, sometimes a hallmark 
for viral infections, indicating that there's a very strong particular immune response to the tumor that you don't see in non-viral cancers. But your point is well taken. It's If it were easy, I wouldn't have a job. You know, clearly there's it's hard to, to know beforehand whether a specific cancer has a viral origin. There are some clues that we get from the epidemiology of different cancers as to whether they're associated with immune suppression, whether they have peculiar geographic distributions, things like that, or, or maybe they're, they can undergo regression occasionally. Those are things that would say, well, maybe it's caused by virus, but if we look at it and we don't find the virus, that's a virus that's causing it, then we just have to throw up our shrug our shoulders, say we, we can't find a, a virus that's causing it. So it's one of those exceptions. Well, what else is noticed to be different about these kind of cancers? Again, has people done single cell sequencing on tumors? Do they metastasize more or less? I mean, there must be something different that characterizes them, or is that overwhelmed by the just the general heterogeneity of, of cancer itself? Oh, no. I'm, uh, there is uh, So Merkel cell carcinoma actually can occur in two ways. One, like, well, one, it can be infected with this virus, and the virus can mutate in a specific way, and it can drive the proliferation of tumor cells. The other way it can occur is through UV irradiation, just like melanoma, and it can cause enough mutation so that there's some unfortunate cell, precursor cell, that develops into to cancer. Those two types of cancer, one is caused by virus. We know that we can, we can prove that the virus is clonal in the cancer cell, meaning it was right at the site in the cell that ultimately led to that person's cancer. And the second one is has no virus in it. Again, we also know it was clonal because the mutations, the cellular mutations that occur in that cancer are clearly present in each and every cancer cell. Those are things that we can easily distinguish, but clinically there's no real difference between those two. One type of cancer, the one with the virus, may be a little less severe than the one without the virus, but presumably because a series of mutations are targeting precisely the same pathways that a virus does, ultimately has the same effect of leading a cell to become a cancer cell. How do um, cancer cells seem to react to um, viral infection versus healthy cells? Has anyone been able to you know, construct a situation where, again, a person or an animal or whatever had cancer, they were infected by a certain virus that targets that tissue that the cancer's in, and then they observe the effect of the cancer cells versus the healthy cells to see how they you know, they work with the virus differently, how they're infected differently, how they... Right. So there's there's a whole field. Okay. So let's turn what I said on its head. Uh, what I've said is that cancers that arise from viruses are due to the fact that, or most likely due to the fact, not everybody agrees with this, but are, are mainly due to the fact that the viruses, these viruses are targeting specific pathways in cells that are also used to control tumor cell growth called tumor suppressors. And by targeting those pathways, a viral infection can put a cell at risk for becoming a cancer. Now, let's stand that on its head. And it turns out something that's been known for a long time is that if you have cancer, 
not caused by a virus, cancer, uh, melanoma is actually a good example of this, and yet you have an infection in that cancer, sometimes that can provoke a very strong immune response that will actually kill the cancer. And that's been used for some types of uh, cancer, uh, particularly uh, uh, melanomas and even uh, brain cancers with virus called uh, herpes simplex. It causes herpes, common uh, viral infection, uh, either of the lips or the genitalia. And so scientists have modified this virus in order for it to grow in different tumors. It turns out that if a tumor has mutations to that control its immune system, then it cannot control a virus that's put into it, whereas healthy cells can. So a virus will tend to select out cancer cells and grow in them. And because it grows in these cancer cells, it is making viral particles and anything that's left of in, in that cancer cell that will recognize an immune or make a, an immune response will be activated and the cells will tend to die. So that's called viral oncolytic therapy. And it's just, the, if you will, the obverse of viral tumor genesis. It's using a virus to take advantage of the fact that cancers tend to occur through mutations in a set of genes that are controlling cell proliferation that are also used to control virus replication. So these are part of the innate immune system. And if there are mutations in those cancer cells, sometimes you can infect the cancer cells with a virus and very successfully seek out and destroy all the cancer cells in someone. And so that is the whole basis for oncolytic therapies. So cancer cells, because of the machinery that's being turned on when infected right. by certain viruses, the trade-off is that they, they can't avoid immune surveillance. They're, they're going to be targeted more likely by, by the immune system, or is it that um, the cancer cell cannot do both things? It cannot successfully be infected by a virus that produces very unprogeny and you know, replicate out of control, it has to choose one or the other? Yeah, it's not a choice. But the idea that if you have a cancer cell that is replicating a virus, then it will kill the cell. However, most most cells that are healthy, that don't have defects in the innate immune system that lead to tumor genesis, most cells will control the virus infection and prevent the virus from replicating. So that way, it's it's like a molecular scalpel that can seek out individual cancer cells when it works, if it works, and destroy them. But it fundamentally really depends on those cancers that have very precise mutations that affect the innate immune system and allow a virus to replicate in the cancer cell that otherwise would not replicate. But is there a, yeah. um, are there only so many resources in a given cell? So if oh, I have yeah. a cancer cell that gets infected by virus, I, I just don't have infinite resources. So is it a trade-off between either the virus replicating or the cancer cell replicating and one loses? No, I don't think that's a good way of looking looking at it, that, that there are limited resources. Instead, I think that cells have evolved. In fact, where this comes from, if you think about it, turns out that the 
some of the proteins, for instance, P53 is a common protein that's uh, that prevents cells from replicating and it initiates cell death. And if you have a mutation to P53, then you're higher risk for developing tumors. Uh, but the precursor of this protein is actually found in unicellular organisms. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because unicellular organisms, uh, these are blue-green algae, aren't trying to prevent cancer. If they were preventing cancer, all they'd be doing is preventing them from growing. They're unicellular organisms. But one thing that they are also is they're colonial organisms. And so there is a benefit for blue-green algae to commit suicide rather than allowing a viral replication to replicate within a colony. And so this idea that that the innate immune system, system, which is clearly ancient, goes back to, to bacteria, actually, of course, have it. CRISPR is, is uh, part of the bacterial immune system against phages. And this these innate immune pathways, as we evolved into multicellular organisms and became susceptible to cancers, that couldn't exist in a unicellular organism. But once we became multicellular organisms and cancers suddenly were a new process that could occur and cells had to have ways to fight that response, what they did was through evolution, they co-opted these pathways that were involved with controlling viral replication and began to use them to control tumor cell growth as well. So P53, while it clearly plays a role in preventing tumor genesis, it also plays a role in preventing viral replication. And so that means that if you target some aspects of these pathways in if uh, a cancer has mutations in specific pathways that allow it to, that cell to grow, it's a biological accident. But nonetheless, what that also is likely to do is disrupt the innate immune system that would normally control a viral replication. And what you can now do is, if you're very good and very lucky, put a virus back into that cancer and that virus will replicate out of control in the in the uh, cancer cells, but not in the healthy human cells. Is is that a more clear explanation of that uh, yin and yang between preventing cancers or tumor suppression and preventing viral infections? Well, I think I see what you're saying is that a cancer cell that gets infected by a virus, the virus now will proliferate out of control much faster and much more than a normal healthy cell. Absolutely. Because the machinery is Yeah, that's mm-hmm. absolutely right. Um, so, so just, just like, um, yeah. just like certain viruses, you know, turn up or down certain uh, genetic expression or epigenetics in cells, you know, to cause proliferation. Why can't we create a, uh, you know, a viral vector that turns down in cancer cells, all these things that have been turned up. Why can't, you know, we do the opposite. And since we know the, uh, the genes that seem to be um, altered that promote proliferation, why can't we do the opposite again and silence them with a viral vector? You sure. Uh, I mean, there's ideas of doing that, not necessarily silencing them, but in directly mutating them out, right? So that you can attempt to prevent cellular uh, proliferation. The problem is, is that uh, cancer genes have functions in normal cells, right? 
they're there for a good reason. It's only under the uh, unfortunate circumstances, a genetic accident, that a cancer emerges. But you know, there are there are genes, for instance, the CMYK protein gene that I I referred to earlier. That's a very important <laughs> protein that controls proliferation of certain cells, and those cells are are necessary for wound healing for growth of embryos, for growth of the immune system. Uh, And so under normal circumstances, they're turned on and off. So selecting those genes and turning them off or actually cutting them out with CRISP would be a possible way of of controlling a cancer. But the problem is, is you've got to be highly selective or else you can cause real problems in the person. They cure them of cancer, but they die of... uh, from lacking an immune system or because their their gut cells die. So, and that's part of the the problems with the selectivity of drugs to inhibit cancer cell growth is that those same pathways are very important for healthy cells as well. And one tries to be as selective as one possibly can. One of the beauties of finding a virus that causes a cancer. And remember, I'm using as a bare minimum estimate about 20% of, actually 16% of of, uh, cancers are known to be caused by viruses, but that's certainly an undercount. So roughly 20% is that viruses you can target and they are separate from the human genome. They, if you target those with either a vaccine or with an antiviral drug in a specific way, then it's highly likely that you can prevent or cure that cancer without any of those side effects that I was talking about being nonspecific to the rest of the the healthy tissues of, of a cancer patient. So unfortunately, there's just not enough work being done on it. Uh, you know, what if anything, the SARS-CoV-2 epidemic, the, perhaps the only only good thing that's come out of that is the recognition that viruses, yes, are quite important and they can do bad things and that they can cause epidemics. And maybe we need to put more resources into developing drugs and targeted therapies and even uh, vaccines that can control other viral infections. But remember, you know, again, with COVID-19, it's a huge pandemic, but we've been through pandemics of cancer caused by viruses. So Capshi sarcoma is a good example. Also, right now, we're in a slow burn epidemic of head and neck cancers that are caused by HPV. And those cancers are dramatically increasing in males above the age of 40 or so. And the vaccines for HPV will not cause the virus to, it won't prevent infection. Uh, it won't target the virus if someone's already infected because the virus tends to be latent and hiding away from the immune system so that it only works to prevent infection. It will not treat an infection once someone is is exposed to the virus. So there should be work being done right now on therapies that can target HPV. And wouldn't that be wonderful if I could give a head and neck cancer patient a drug that 
only tr targeted HPV 16 or 18 and eliminated those cancer cells, but didn't target any other healthy human protein. And so would be like an antibiotic, the same thing as an antibiotic. That's possible. It's just that the science has not been done and the research focus has not been put on viruses and the money has is, is not been devoted to developing those kinds of uh, compounds or even vaccines that can treat cancers that are caused by viruses. Well, very good. Well, Patrick, we're out of time, but what's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? And go our our website. It is called tumorvirology.pit.edu. Catchy name, tumorvirology.pit.edu. And they can learn more about okay. our, our work. Rich, Excellent. it was nice well, Patrick, talking to you. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for the, the smart comments and the smart uh, questions. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.